you have a Bible, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. But before we do that, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the words of David. We pray, God, that as we open your your word now, that we would not only uh, come to understand ourselves better, but that we would see you more clearly. You are uh, the light of the world. You are the gracious and merciful and just king. We pray, God, that we would um, be humbled by David's testimony of your greatness this morning and that we would be transformed by it, that we would um, be more cheerful to ob- and, and quick to obey you, and that we would be more compassionate and understanding for those, Lord, who sit in darkness. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, chapter 23 of Second Samuel, verses 1 through 7, is a poem. It's, it's a poem about the Son King. As we've been looking at the last few weeks, this, um, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are the epilogue. They summarize both the life of David and the books of Samuel. And what we have right in the center of that epilogue were two um, poetic works. One was a psalm that we looked at last week. And the second is, is literally a poem that David wrote about the ideal king. What is the ideal king like as the first king of Israel, it was incumbent upon him to set certain standards. Uh, this this always happens. Uh, there's a famous stories about George Washington knowing that he was in fact the first American president, said and did things um, that were not written into the script, but have since become. Uh, the things that every president says. One, one of them is the swearing in. There was a text for his swearing in, and he added words about um, obeying God in there. And every president, uh, even in, up to and including the most recent ones, have all said the same thing, because you always say what Washington said. <laughs> and so what we have here is the first king of Israel setting the standard for what kings of Israel ought to be like. Now, it, it says in the text that these are the last words of David. Uh, and then we're going to carry on into the story and hear about his battles, and then we're going to hear a story about um, where he's interacting with God and takes a census. So I know it's a little confusing. What does this mean that these are the last words of David? Well, first off, we know that this whole section is taken out of chronological order. And secondly, there is a, the final words of David are recorded in 1 Kings chapter 2. It's a deathbed statement that he makes to his son Solomon, instructing him in how to put... Uh, his kingdom in order. So what, what they mean here by the last words of David is this is actually the last public declaration made by David. This was, in a sense, his last speech. And his last speech was short because he was old. <laughs> it was poetic because it's David. And it's about a king because he's the king. Right? His last words were instructions to Israel, much like Moses' last words were instruction to Israel. But in this case, it's about what uh, the, the ideal king is like what? What should they look for? How how do they measure the coming generations? Now, instead of concentrating on Yahweh's deliverance of his anointed, David speaks of the importance and blessing of a faithful king. He needs to remind the people, especially after some of the mishaps in his own reign, of what exactly the point of having a king is, and it's to bless. It is to create an environment in which people thrive. Now, specifically, this poem describes the blessings that come upon a people when their leaders rule over them righteously and in the fear of God. 
So this isn't just helpful to the Israelites in David's day. This is helpful to all Christians and all generations so that we understand exactly what, it's, what we're looking for when we're looking for a ruler. What is a just ruler? What is the ideal ruler? What is the sun king if we're talking about the election season that's coming up, coming upon us? <laughs> now, the Targums, the Targums, you've probably never heard that word before, but as we covered in Advent, uh, the Hebrews lost their language in the intertestimonial period. And the Targums were actually translations, paraphrases of the scriptures from Hebrew into Aramaic, generally with commentary. So they, w- they would paraphrase the Bible and include commentary. And this is commonly what people used uh, when they were reading the scriptures. They were very, very common. There's different ones. Um, one of them is, right, just like you have the John MacArthur Study Bible, and you've got the Ligonier Study Bible, and I'm sure Doug Wilson will come out with one at some point. I hope not, actually. That was a joke. So the Targum of Jonathan um, actually had, in, in its text, it described this poem as prophecies about the coming Messiah. It, they were the first ones to say, you know what? I think David wasn't just talking about ideal kings in an earthly sense. I think he may have meant that this is what the Messiah will be like. And I, and I believe that those translators got it right because we see that Jesus takes up the images of this poem when he describes himself. He describes himself as the light, the light of the world in John 8, 12 and 9, 5, and his prophetic parable comparing the wicked to weeds that must be burned in Matthew 13 is a direct reference to the poem we're going to look at today. So Jesus understood that, like all scripture, this, this portion of scripture was talking about him. Uh, he was not the only one to make that connection. At some point, the Jews understood that what David was talking about was more than earthly kings. Now, um, Jesus was drawing upon images derived from this passage, and so it's, if, if, if he thought it was about him, and we want to learn more about Jesus, then it, it, you know, it stands to reason that we should learn more about this poem. <laughs> so let's start. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it said. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel. I think instead of the, uh, the branch, you know, the stump of Jesse, which is what we have been referring to him as, poor David, I think maybe we should start referring to him as the sweet psalmist of Israel. That sounds way better, doesn't it? What would you rather be, the stump of Jesse or the sweet psalmist? Right? It sounds like a mesquite barbecue sauce. <laughs> if I ever come out of a line of barbecue sauces, I'm going to call it sweet psalmist. <laughs> now, David begins his poem, actually, with a fourfold description of himself. Uh, so he starts this, this whole poem by talking about himself, which might seem weird at the beginning, but we have to look at the details to see exactly what it is he's doing. David is the son of Jesse, he's a man raised on high, he is the anointed, and he is the sweet psalmist. David was raised from insignificance, he was anointed by Yahweh, and he has a reputation as a writer of songs, and those songs are responses to what Yahweh has done in his life. David is describing himself, this is how he's known, he was a nobody who was elevated, who was anointed from the heavens, and is one, because of these facts, that he can't stop singing about how great the Lord is. This is his reputation, and I think it's a worthy one. I think he's describing himself well here. The source of David's greatness, the source of the meaning of his life, is not himself, but the Lord. 
In every one of these descriptions, he's talking about what God has done for him. Jesse was a man of wealth of the tribe of Judah, but what do we remember him as, right? He was not a significant character. There's no books that are about him. He's known simply as David's grandfather and the son of, of uh, Boaz and Ruth. And so when, when David is referring to this very humble beginning, he, he's reminding everyone that his grandmother, a few generations back, was actually a Moabite. Right? He, he's talking about the fact that God has been faithful, not just to him, but faithful to his grandparents. So he's not just talking about himself. He's talking about himself in reference to all the things that God has done for him, and that begins with generations prior. And you go back and you look at the book of Ruth and you think, yes, this is the stock from which David came. This is a glorious story because you got Ruth who desert, right? She's a widow who's from uh, Moab and she comes into Israel and she's redeemed by Boaz. And Boaz is a fantastic character. And you see God is present in the whole thing. And that is what that this is how David wants to be known. He doesn't refer to the battles he's won. In the end, his last public statements are about the humble beginnings uh, and, and God's faithfulness to his grandparents. And this is very different than some of the David we've seen throughout this book, who's obsessed with power, who's obsessed with his flesh, and everybody else is obsessed with his prowess on the battlefield. But how he wants to be remembered is a man whose God's faithfulness could be seen in his family for generations. Now, on the other hand, something that goes way further back is the fact that he is of the tribe of Judah. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 49, there is a, um, a prophetic word given to the sons of Israel um, on, the, on Jacob's deathbed. And one of the things that he says is this mysterious portion about how Judah will eventually rise up and become the ruling tribe of Israel. So even though David comes from these very humble beginnings, we see in him the fulfillment of promises made way back in the book of Genesis. He is the scepter that rose within the tribe of Judah. He is the promised son that would rise up from Judah to rule all Israel. So he sees in his life not just the faithfulness shown to his grandparents, but the fulfillment of God's word to his people from hundreds and hundreds of years prior. His eyes are not upon himself. His eyes are upon the Lord and the long history that has gotten him to the place that he is in. Now, David refers to himself then as the anointed one, the Christ. This refers to not only the ritual anointing of oil, that is how you anointed someone to become king, they, they poured oil on his head, but in verse 2, it speaks of the Spirit, which also descended from the heavens and anointed David. David is the Christ. David is the one who bears upon himself the Spirit of the Lord. He also references the Psalms. Now, this, this is tricky here because the Hebrew is a little... Um, it's a little ambiguous, I would say. It, it literally says the sweet one of the chants of Israel. So it could mean one of two things. That means either he's the one who wrote them or he's the one that they're about. And I think both are true. Because largely, what did David sing about? David sang about himself in reference right, to all the things that God either was doing for him or he was hoping God would do for him, his emotional response to all these events. And so in one sense, the Psalms are really about David, but he's also the author of them. And so whichever way you slice it, either one really makes sense. The Hebrew word for oracle 
indicates that David is functioning in a prophetic capacity. And this is actually very strange. So he's already taken the ephod. He has been the one who's communicated with Yahweh. He's, he's fulfilled the priestly office, even as the king. And now what we see is he's issuing oracles, which is something prophets do. And so what you have is, a, is the king of Israel, a priest of Israel, and a prophet of Israel. And all of this foreshadows the threefold office of Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. David was the first one who did all three. And, and in fact, you're not going, it's going to be very hard to find a king who comes close to even doing two of them, let alone three of them. Okay? He's the only king at this stage who's done both the prophetic office, the priestly office, and the king office, the office of king. Now, historically, the church has understood that the nature of scripture is both human and divine. Okay? Who wrote the Bible? Well, men did. Okay, who wrote the Bible? Well, God did. And, and, and if you say, right, either way you answer, both are, in, in a sense, true. Now, what, what David is saying is, is the words that are in his mouth are the words of the living God. Right? The oracle in my mouth is the oracle of the living God. And this is how Peter explained it in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 26, in reference to David writing Psalm 2. Peter says, who, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, right? God, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nation, uh, Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So who wrote Psalm 2? Was it God by the Holy Spirit or was it David? Well, it was both. And this is what I love about scripture. We got, that then requires us to interpret it a certain way because men have personalities, men have cultures, Men have um, their personalities. And they have all the things that make them them, and they're writing on right the words of God, which, which is does not change. Men change; the word of God does not. And so you have these two things together. And this is why, when we're we're trying to interpret Scripture, it can be very difficult because the cultural stuff, the stuff that changes, has to be dealt with, and the stuff that doesn't change has to be dealt with. The Lord spoke by the Holy Spirit, through David, his human instrument. These are the wor David's words, and yet they are Yahweh's words. And this is a good description of the entire Bible. Right? These are Peter's words, they are God's words. These are Paul's words, these are God's words. And what I really love is, like, when you get to Gospels like Mark, right? as we said there, it's the Gospel according to Mark, according to Peter, according to Jesus. <laughs> and you have this path that goes all the way back. And, and it, 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 the scriptures are alone phenomenal in this case. So I'll stop waxing eloquent about that. You should get a Bible and read it. It's fantastic. That's my point. Now, using David's experiences, using David's personality, using his education, his vocabulary, Yahweh is going to reveal something to us about the ideal king, not just for Israel, not just for the nations generally, but for the cosmos themselves. And so David continues in verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now a righteous king is a king who rules in the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Now the king who pleases the Lord rules over men in righteousness. He who exercises authority over others in a manner consistent with the Lord's instruction. That's what he's talking about. A ruler isn't, right? A good ruler, a just ruler, is one who fears God and obeys God. 
It's very difficult to be a just ruler without doing those two things. Okay? And, and, and that's why um, men <laughs> are, are more susceptible to error, and that's why systems typically keep men on, on task. This is why you have things like constitutions. This is why you have multiple levels of government where you have three, right, the judiciary, you have Congress, you have the president, you have parliament, you have the king, you have the courts. You have nations that set up multiple layers because systems, right, just men in a system is easier than a man because a man is going to go either one of two ways. He's either going to obey God or not. And if it's all up to one guy, that is a dangerous place to be in. Yay, republics. We are pro-republic. Not Republican, pro-republic. A, a proper king must rule in the fear of God. Okay? And if he doesn't, he isn't. It's very important that we're going to just put a pin there and that, and we're going to come back to it. Now, Yahweh compares a ruler. Right? This, is, this is what's beautiful here. How does, how does Yahweh, how does the living God, how does the triune God describe the ideal king? If you were going to talk to me about what does the ideal king look like, I would start walking you through Henry V. If you want to talk about the ideal king, I would go to my computer and I would download my, my lectures on Alfred, Alfred the Great, they call him, for a good reason, and I would start talking to you about him, and I would talk to you about the fact, the fact that he designed better boats than the Vikings, and the fact that he, he made sure that the priests all knew Latin. If you started talking to men about what makes an ideal king, the list is huge, right? They vote Republican? Is that what we're going to say? No. When Yahweh wants to describe what the ideal king is like, he describes the natural world. He uses the natural world. He starts talking about the sun. He starts talking about dew. He starts talking about grass. Right? How many of you guys in your political theory, when you're thinking of ideal leaders, think of the grass? Something that is just out there that we chop with our weed whackers and we tread upon and we run around upon. And it's, that's what an, right? an ideal king is like dew on the morning. <laughs> That is not how we would describe it. But what we find here is that Yahweh compares a good ruler to the light of the morning sun. The light of the morning sun. Now, this association with the sun is rooted in Genesis chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. And this is what it says there. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God sets these two lights in the skies, one to rule the day, one to rule the night. And what is the ideal king like? He is like the ruler of the day. Right? And, and we, do you guys agree that the sun rules the day? This is what we were talking about in our, our discipleship class this morning. The sun rules the day. How much of our lives depends upon us either blocking the, the effects of the sun or harnessing the effects of the sun, right? We all love solar energy now. Without the sun, our food doesn't grow. And, and, and the description I give, if you've never been there, Phoenix, Arizona is like the worst place in the world. Like they have done nothing to stop the sun in that place. It, the, one of the worst weeks of my life I spent there, and all I wanted to do was dig down under the ground as far as I could go. I thought swimming in the pool would protect me from the sun. But apparently water magnifies the effect of sun, <laughs> which I, I was like, I need to get back to Washington as fast as I can. Okay, the sun clearly rules the day. You, you go walking around, in the, out, out, even in this, you go up to the mountains where there's snow, and, you're, and even there, you, you can, it's difficult to push back the effect of the sun. And Yahweh says that is what a just ruler is like. He is this 
powerful thing that must be dealt with. He is there and he rules over uh, the day. He rules over his kingdom like the sun rules over the day. Now, he- uh, heavenly bodies, since they are raised up high into the heavens, have always in the Bible represented kings who are raised up over their people. This is the generic significance of the imagery. But the Lord speaks here specifically about the light of the morning sun. Not just the sun, but the morning sun that shines without clouds on the tender grass. The image is extended to show the specific ways in which the righteous king is like the sun. He's not just like the sun at at midday. He's like that glorious hope of the sun in the morning. Right? When it's not too hot, it's not too cold, the sun isn't, isn't too high in the sky, It's not not too high over us. But there he is bringing hope, coming through uh, the darkness of night, the death of sleep. The morning sun is is what they compare the righteous king to. Now this comparison suggests that a ruler who rules according to the Lord's guidelines uh, brings opportunity. He brings growth, right? He's he's like the morning sun that, that helps the grass grow. Right? They're using all these metaphors together to show us that, that the king, the, a, a just king, a good king, is a king who creates a particular kind of environment in which things can flourish. Right? What happens on a farm when there's too much sun? What happens in your garden when there's not enough? Right? There's an amount of sun that actually makes everything flourish. And a just ruler is compared to these lovely experiences common to all mankind everywhere. The early morning, when light dawns, the warmth of the sun in a cloudless morning, the rain that enables grass to sprout even after long drought. All three elements are necessary for the healthy growth of plants, without which all life would cease, and for society, the righteous ruler has an equally vital part to play. Now, David has talked about this elsewhere. He's expanded upon these ideas in Psalm 72. So if we turn to Psalm 72... David himself will explain this just a little further to us. In verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 72, we read, um, The king, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then you go to verse 15. It says, Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessing invoked for him all the day. Why? Because when you have a just king, a king who creates the kind of environment where your families flourish, and business flourishes, and commerce flourishes, and and nature flourishes under his stewardship, when you have the kind of government, and, and a kind of ruler that's just and good and righteous and upright, everybody is blessed. And when you don't, have that kind of king, what happens? What happens? Right? Everyone remembers at this particular moment that you live in Washington. Now, okay, it's not as bad as living here 200 years ago when there was nothing, when it was just a wilderness. I, I would kind of take it as it is versus the wilderness, but that's a story for another day. But I, sometimes when you're talking about how bad things are in America, this is where historical, some historical review helps. Okay, what we're dealing with here is not the paganism of Druids in Ireland in 800. <laughs> what we deal with here is not the kind of paganism that, that you found right, amongst the Muslims when, when they were first conquering Spain. Right? I mean, there, there's a kind of thing that goes on here, and it's, it's bad, but just a little healthy perspective. But 
we understand the idea of an environment in which thriving is not exactly promoted by the government. Right? We live in an environment where it is hard to thrive. It is hard to thrive as a family. It is hard to thrive with a business. It's hard to thrive as a Christian school. It's hard to thrive as, as just a human being. Right? I mean, <laughs> uh, um, w- w- between the laws of, of how many chickens you can have and how many goats you can have and what you can grow on your own land, uh, this is partially foolishly for years why I decided I was never going to own land because, because of property taxes, I don't think you really own it. I really don't. You're just renting it for a time, and maybe your kids can afford to continue to rent it. But then I had a former a man, this is what I was talking about, perspective. A friend of mine who was raised in communist <laughs> Poland was like, listen, dude, if you can own land on any level, do it. Right? It's the only way to really start fighting. And I was like, oh, okay, so it, apparently it's worse somewhere else. <laughs> so maybe we'll buy land. But we understand, we understand that the, the, the quality of the government it makes affects directly the quality of the environment in which we are trying to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion and fulfill the Great Commission. Right? How can we fulfill the Great Commission when there are things the government says we are not allowed to talk about? When you have somebody with gender confusion, I am not allowed to say anything to them other than what the government tells me I can say to them. So how, how are we going to flourish when, and how are we going to fight the culture wars when, when they're restricting what we can say? Right? A righteous king, a good king, a good ruler, whether it's a father in a home, a pastor in a church, a governor in a state, they have a direct effect on the environment in which things flourish or don't. Lasting peace and security, as well as conservation of natural resources, depend on long-term justice and mercy exercised by godly authority. The king's king brings light out of darkness. He brings mourning. This is an image that David has used previously where he spoke of the Lord as lamp that illumined him while he sat in darkness. That's what he said in 2 Samuel 23, 29. What the Lord was to David, right, a light in the darkness, David is now saying he must be to the people of Israel. So the, the, the light that he receives from on high is the light he's supposed to reflect upon the people under his authority. And this is the ancient way of understanding the sun and the moon. Okay, the sun is the Lord Jesus, the moon is the church. The church, as the moon does not have its own light, all it can do is reflect the greater light of the sun. And kings are compared to the moon in this regard. All they can do is reflect the light of the sun, the light of God that they have received. Right? When you look up at the moon, why can you see it? Even in the middle of right, midnight, you go out and you can see the, the moon. Why? Because the sun, sun is shining on it. I was outside the other day, and it was cloudless. I could, I'm always shocked by how much I can see simply by the light that's reflected off of the moon. And, and this is what kings are supposed to be like. The light that they receive from on high is the light that they are then casting onto the people who are sitting in darkness. Now, the sun also brings fertility from the earth, causing vegetation to shoot up. Sunshine and rain together make the land flourish like a fruitful garden. If we go back to Psalm 72, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. A kingdom with a good king is like a fertile garden. This is what the word of God says in Psalm 72, verses 1 through 7. 
Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Where there is a just king is a flourishing garden. That is what David is telling us. That is what the Lord God is saying through David. He wants us to understand this. Now in 2 Samuel 23 verse 4, the word earth could be translated as land. Okay, It could be earth or land, which would imply that David here is, is talking about the fruitfulness of the promised land particularly. I, I think earth is the wrong translation. In the context of David and his kingdom, it would make more sense to refer to the promised land and not the earth generally. Under the light and warmth of a righteous king, the land becomes truly a land of milk and honey. That's what he's getting at. This is specifically true under the terms of the Davidic covenant, since the fruitfulness of Israel depended entirely on the light that came from David. That's what Second Samuel 7 is about. The, the, how well it goes in Israel depends entirely upon the light that we would find in David and his household. And we're going to see, right, you go into the history of Israel down to the exile, what happens? Everyone's, why are we sitting in darkness? Why is the light of our king, of the throne of David, the household of David, it is ceasing to shine forth its light. It is ceasing to um, create an environment that, in which we are going to flourish. And this is what the prophets and the later Israelites are going to say. Because the whole thing depends upon what God said to David in 2 Samuel 7. And this is what the Lord promised him. He said, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of your great, like the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Right? This is what God promised to the household of David. The household of David is going to go on and fail, and what happens to Israel? They're no longer planted in land flowing with milk and honey. They are uprooted and they are cast out. Why? Because of the unfaithfulness of the kings of Israel. And, and what happens, ladies and gentlemen, to a land when the kings, when the household of the kings ceases to follow the Lord? We can look throughout history. What happens when ha- the households who rule over nations reject the Lord? What happens to those peoples? Now, in his work, a treatise on the last words of David, Martin Luther wrote, But in the days of Messiah, says David, when God himself were reigned to justify, to justify us and to save us by grace, it will be as enchanting as the most delightful time in spring, in the wake of a refreshing and warm rain, that is, following the preaching of the comforting gospel, immediately after which the Son, Christ, rises in our hearts through true faith, and devoid of Moses' clouds and thunder and lightning. Then all luxuriates and greens and blossoms, and the day is filled with joy and peace, the like of which is unknown to the rest of the year. For here, winter, clouds, sin, death, and all terrors are overcome, and a joyous and beautiful Easter day is now celebrated into eternity. Behold, that is what David means when he compares his son's Messiah's rule to a day in spring. When it rains early in the morning, 
And then the sun rises in all its splendor and makes everything green and blooming and fragrant and live and merry. Ask yourself if this is not the best and happiest time of the year. Because when the Lord Jesus comes, and the Lord, and what does he do? He wears the crown of thorns upon his head. Right? He takes the curse of the earth, the thing that makes our work difficult and makes it unfruitful and, and, and futile. He wears it upon his head. And then he, he, he is nailed to a cross and he dies. And, and what happens then? Well, he's buried in the ground like a seed. And any seed that is planted in the ground, it, it does not remain that way. It comes up as something new, full of life. And what is Jesus? Jesus, if you know Jesus, as John says, you have eternal life. Under the, under the rule of the Lord Jesus, unlike the rule of men, unlike the rule of David, unlike the, right, there is a qualitative difference between the greenness and liveliness and merriment. Where are we all heading, in fact? We're heading to the, to the supper feast of the Lamb. And so the hope of David is that his sons will rule this way. But ultimately what he is talking about that Luther has described here is not earthly kings as we know them, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who will usher, usher in an Easter day for which the world will not remain the same. And under his rule, as we read in Isaiah, what? Eventually we hammer our spears into plowshares. Eventually, right, the lion lays down with the lamb. Eventually what happens? Does, does the king, the Lord Jesus, win or not? And what are the signs of his, of his winning? Now, I understand. Okay? I have CNN too. Okay? But this is the point I love to make. I love to make the eschatological point without using eschatology. Anybody here have a freezer? Raise your hand if you have a freezer. Okay. Now, what does a freezer do? Does it stop the process, natural process of death? Okay. I would like to say, if you ever doubt the fact that Jesus Christ is winning, go and stick your head in the freezer. Be like, man, that's cold, right? <laughs> go, to the, go to the store, buy a giant chuck roast, bring it home and stick it in your freezer, and then three months later, take it out and be like, look at that, we stopped death. And, and this is what I'm saying. The world, since Christ came out of the ground and ascended into heaven, has, has what, what's happened? Right? What's happened to human knowledge? What's happened to medicine? What's happened to music? What's happened to culture? What's happened to our spreading over the world and making it fruitful? Right? Under his watch, how fruitful is the world now compared to 800 BC? I defy anyone on, 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 on the lowest level of logic, looking at the history of the world, I defy you to tell me that the Lord Jesus is not winning. That the environment in which he is ruling and reigning is not one in which mankind flourishes. And that is what David is talking about. Okay? Jesus wins. He wins when he comes out of the ground. He wins when he ascends into heaven. He wins when he sends his spirit upon us. And he wins as we continue to, to, to fulfill the cultural mandate in the Great Commission, spreading his kingdom to the four corners from the rivers to the ends of the earth, as it says in Psalm 72. And this is a glorious hope. This is the good news that people who are sitting in darkness need to hear. This is the light as we, the church, the moon, we're reflecting this light. This is the light that people need to see in the darkness. And it needs to, what? Lift their eyes up to the heavens where they will see the true and living God, the sun, that gives life, right? The light of the world. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And we will see that this is actually, this poem is, is partially how Paul understands Christ's coming into the world. 
Now, Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read, begin in verse 11. For the grace of God has dawned, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And that's it. In verse 11, the word appeared is dawned. And this is what, this is what happens to modern Christians. Right? We look out the window and we think, you know, it's evening time. But if, if you spend enough time outside, you notice that there is this period of time at the end of the day and a period of time at the beginning of the day that look an awful lot like one another. And what I find with pessimistic Christians is that they tend to think it's, the sun is about to go down. And my argument all the time is it, right, it only happened 2,000 years ago, which in the history of the world is not that long ago. And so we are standing still in the morning light, just like David has described here. Christ has dawned, and that light hasn't just saved us, it's training us in grace. If you don't believe me, stick your head in the freezer. (laughs) Come on, I love it. Just get on an airplane and fly to Arizona. (laughs) You go through the, they have these things there. The closest they got to keeping it cool in Arizona is when you walk into every single building there, there's these misters. And I was just the guy from Washington standing in every mister and every doorway I could find. And I was like, this is, and later I was like, that's gospel right there, baby. Right? Because if you stand right here, actually, anyway. Now, David looked forward by faith to the fulfillment in Christ of Yahweh's promises to his household. Okay? He's looking forward. And, and this is what was read for us this morning. Uh, it, 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 we start to get into these, these things here that are very mysterious. Peter referred to the fact that those who wrote the Old Testament were straining. In, they're looking in what they're writing themselves, trying to see when the Christ would come, when he would bring uh, the fulfillment of all these promises. And that's what we see David here doing. Right? He's, he's straining his, his emotive abilities, his imaginative abilities, to, to see when it would be that this promised son would finally come from his household and not just fulfill all the, the promises as David understood them, but as we see in this poem, to fulfill the promises of, of, of mankind going all the way back to Genesis beyond anything that we could possibly conceive. David is straining here. And we go back and we look at these words, and we know the end of the story, and, and, and what we see in them is the glory that David himself could not see. Right? He was writing these things for our instruction. And he looked forward with hope, and he looked forward with vitality, and he looked forward with a kind of swagger that I think we all could look. Right? Why do we look back and see what God has done, and why are we possibly pessimistic about it? We look at the history of God dealing with his people. We're like, yeah, you know, it's been unbelievably glorious. I mean, he took a guy from Nazareth and put him on a cross, and it looked like he died, but then he won. But then we look forward to the future, and we're like, yeah, it's not going to be good. We're like, what story are Okay. I'll get off the soapbox and back in the pulpit. Now, we're going to go on to 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me. With an ever, yeah, he has made me with an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. It's a question. Will he not cause all my hope and all my desire to prosper? God's blessing on David was evident, indicating that his house was with God. 
The first line of verse 5 is difficult, but probably should be translated as, is not my house so with God? As he's described, right, in, in the, the rising sun, the morning sun that, bring, that, that brings all this vitality and, and creates this environment. He's saying, isn't my house like this? Isn't my house like this? And I know for all of us who've been sitting here listening to the last half of Second Samuel, we're like, uh, David, what house are you talking about? You're not talking about your house, are you? Your house is like this? And so what is David doing? Okay, What is David doing? Is he referring to his faithfulness? Is, is he looking back on his life and he's like, you know what, I've been super faithful. Look at my son Absalom. I mean, it's the greatest son ever raised in the history of the church. No. He's looking back to 2 Samuel 7 to what God promised to him. This is what makes David different. When he's looking, right, he's not looking at his lack of faithfulness. He is looking at God's faithfulness. And this is, this is the assurance of the faith that I think all of us need. Right? If you, you could come to me and you can tell me my sins... And I, would, and, and I would be like, okay, either I repented of those or I will repent of those. Thank you very much. But what you can't do is come to me and say, well, you are a condemned person and here's what you did. I'd be like, that, that is some serious unrighteousness that you're pointing out there, but it is nothing compared to the righteousness and faithfulness of God. And, and this, is, this is what I was talking about last week. This is a kind of boldness where stop standing on your own wisdom, your own strength, your own understanding of the law, and the more we stand upon Christ and what he has done and his faithfulness, the stronger and bolder we will be. The more we will be able to tackle the the responsibilities we have in our own household, in this God-forsaken place that we seem to be living in that isn't, right? how, How we get up the energy and the courage and the strength to do these things is not by looking at ourselves but by looking at God. Because even at this point, David could say, isn't it so with my house? And isn't, isn't David's household even now? Isn't what's happening to him more gracious than what happened to Saul's? If we surveyed it, right? Is, is David at this point receiving more grace, more forgiveness, more mercy? Right? Is God, God said, I will not forsake you. And even though David tried again and again and again to forsake God, God never forsaked David. And he's saying, isn't it so with my house? Even my house. Look at my house. Look at my son Absalom. Look at this guy Joab that I'm, I'm taking around with me who's like a death cloud. Look at my household. And isn't it so that I have received grace and mercy and faithfulness from God? And what we do is we flip the whole thing on, on its head. Well, I mean, look at what we've done. Look at what that guy's done. Look at that household. There's no hope for that household. And what we're doing is we're looking at one another. We're looking at the circumstances we're looking at the things that we can see with our eyes. And, and there is another reality in which God in heaven has made promises, and, and he has fulfilled those promises to demonstrate to us how we ought to live, which is not with eyes on ourselves or one another, but eyes on him. And this is, again, I, I defy you. you. You go home, and you sit down with your spouse and your children, and you tell me that it's not better in your household now than a generation ago two generations ago, that it's not better in your house than 10 years ago, right? There, there, was just <laughs> there was something recently, well, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to use fewer references to my own family. Hypothetically, imagine a guy sitting in his house <laughs> and he suddenly remembers the fact that he used to have to apologize for something like on a weekly basis. And so say he's got this pattern going and one day he actually apologizes for it not realizing that he actually hadn't done it that week. Now, is that a sign of what? Him? 
this hypothetical person? Or God's greatness in that person's life? To, to receive grace, to overcome sins, and not even realize it? Is it not so with our house? Right? Can you, and this is, you have got to be able to say this. If you can't, there's a problem in the, with the way you understand the gospel. If you look at yourself and you look at your family and you look at the circumstances, you look at the sins, and you, and, and you can't say with David, isn't it so with my house? Confidently. Then you have a gospel problem. You've got, you've got it backwards. You're more, you're, you're, your eyes are on men and what's happening down here and not on God. Look at him. Look at everything he's promised and everything he's fulfilled and everything he is doing. And you say, isn't it so with my house? And say it with confidence and boldness. Now, Matthew Henry, commenting on this section, wrote, In many things he had his own neglect and wrong conduct to blame, but David comforted himself that the Lord had made with him an everlasting covenant. By this he principally intended the covenant of mercy and peace, which the Lord made with him as a sinner who believed in the promised Savior, who embraced the promised blessing, who yielded up himself to the Lord to be his redeemed servant. Believers shall forever enjoy covenant blessings, and God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost shall be ever glorified in their salvation. Thus, pardon, righteousness, grace, eternal life are secured as the gift of God through Jesus Christ. There is an infinite fullness of grace and all blessings treasured up in Christ for those who seek his salvation. This covenant was all David's salvation, He so well knew the holy law of God and the extent of his own sinfulness that he perceived what was needful for his own case in this salvation. It was therefore his desire. And so he said, you know what my desire is to overcome all these things. And so he looked to the Lord God, his covenant Lord, and he knew that he would would, through him overcome all of these things, that the house would remain secure. Now, compare your conduct to the word of God. Do it. Find there much to blame yourself for. But look again and, and look and, and see the promises of hope and mercy that are given to you in the Lord Jesus. Stand upon those promises fulfilled in him. Build upon him. Look to nothing but Christ. Because if he builds the house, those who labor do not labor in vain. His iron tools are ever busy building and pruning and finishing and shaping and protecting. And that's what we go on to see here in the close of this poem. A just king is not only a blessing to good conduct, but a terror to evil conduct. 2 Samuel 23, 6 and 7. But the worthless men are all alike thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. Now, David's poem contrasts here the two types of plants. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 3. There are two kinds of plants. Jesus also talks about two different kinds of plants. He talks about harvesting two different things, right? Tares and wheat. Or he has to shake out the wheat and get rid of uh, the chaff. And that's what David is talking about here. There, there, There are weeds. There are worthless sons that grow up in the garden, and what does the just king do? He gets rid of them. Okay, Matthew thirteen twenty two. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
There are things that grow up amongst us that choke out this faith that I'm talking about. There are things that cause us to only see ourselves and our, own, and our circumstances and what we have done. There are things that distract us from the living God. And, and what we need to do is pray that God would weed these things out, that he would take in his hand that golden scepter, and that he would, right, it's like one of those three-pronged weeding tools, and he gets down in his own garden, and he weeds out all those things that are going to choke out of us faith and joy and goodness. What we're talking about here is a lot of Old Testament imagery, including the fact that unrighteous men, worthless men, are compared to thorns. Micah chapter 7, verse 4, The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And this is what the prophet has to say of Israel itself. They had fallen so far from the grace of God, they had rejected him to such an extent that they are a thorn hedge. And God says, stand back because now I'm going to get rid of the thorn hedge. And, and this is the language that David is using. A just king will deal, with appropriate, uh, will deal appropriately with thorns. This is the meaning of Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah will rid the earth of all those rebellious men who refuse Christ's scepter. That scepter will be to evil men a scythe and a riot of iron and a plow to turn over the soil. Now, this was moderately controversial in recent times, but Romans chapter 13 says this, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, the king on earth is made like the king in heaven. And the king in heaven isn't just blessing the righteous. He's punishing the wicked. And we know on the last day, when we're standing there at the judgment, right, the, the fruitful vines that have grown up, uh, that abide in Christ, will live forever and bear fruit for, to eternal life. And then all of the weeds will be gathered up together and thrown into flames. And this is the hope of the people of God. I'm not going to get distracted about Romans 13 and the way we've been talking about it the last few years. The, the, there's a bigger point here. Good kings, just kings, righteous rulers are a terror to bad conduct. Right? Do, are your children... <laughs> This is, this is something we have to deal with in our own house. We have to tell our children, it, don't lie to get out of a spanking. Don't hate spanking more than, right, than you love the truth. Because what happens to us? Sometimes when we are afraid of the authorities in our lives, we will hide things. But, but what, what Christ wants us to know, the justice and mercy of his cross, it is, what it tells us is that he deals with things. He, he will deal mercifully with sin if you bring it to him and you confess it. And, and if you don't, those people will receive the justice that he didn't take upon himself, right? He received the punishment for all our sins. And so when we go to him and we hide ourselves in him and we abide in him, what, what we receive is mercy and grace and tender care. And if we reject that, what we will find on the last day is, is true justice, true goodness, true reconciliation of all things in him who upon his cross gave the opportunity for everyone to deal with it before the final day. Now, Adam, 
In the garden was a federal head. He was the federal head of mankind. He was the vice regent of Yahweh. He was a king, a lower king, under the great king of Yahweh. And he was put in the garden to what? Guard and keep it. And so what we see is the ideal king, the ideal king over a nation, the ideal king of the Messiah is a gardener who guards the garden and keeps the garden. What should Adam have done to the snake? He should have stomped on its head. He should have taken those pruning shears that he had and, and, and did a little pruning on the snake. <laughs> okay? What, what he should have done was taken that plow and, and ran over the snake with the plow. Right? So the tools that he uses to tend the garden are the same tools he could have used to defend the garden from a snake. And then Jesus, right, the greater Adam, the greater David, the greater gardener, he comes and he says, listen, I, I am the true vine. In any branch right, that is dead, I will throw out. Anyone who abides in me will have eternal life. Anyone who abides in me will have everlasting fruit. He is the penultimate gardener. He is the one at the top. He is the one who is tending his, his field, which is the earth. <laughs> He's tending that garden by both pruning those, right, the fruit trees and also protecting it from the evil ones. And what David is talking about here is something so much more glorious than what he could have possibly imagined. It's staggering to see it. The king is a gardener. And, and so that means right, everyone in authority has got to think of themselves as a gardener. Now, if you don't know very much about gardening... Right? I would learn something about gardening. This, this is helpful to me when I'm, I'm sitting down with men and I'm teaching them about husbandry, what, what it means to be a husband. That word used to mean something more than just being right, married to a woman. And so you, if you understand husbandry, you understand what it means to be a husband. If you understand gardening, you understand what it means to tend to the garden of your own household. Right? The, the, you have to do as much weeding as you do fertilizing. You have to know what time to plant things and when not to plant things. You have to know when, how much sun it needs and how little sun it needs. Right? I don't know how many times I go and I buy a bunch of plants and I completely ignore the little tiny cards in them. I plant them in the wrong part of my yard and they all get fried and burned to a crisp. And all I had to do was read the little card. Okay? And how often do we go about gardening our own homes, our businesses, our community that we have authority over. We are not right, living righteously, living as just rulers, just authorities, because we don't know very much about gardening. <laughs> and and the, great, the greatest, the poem about the ideal king describes a gardener. And, and this is what I love about biblical revelation. What it, what it tells us is that what we want to do, modern Christians, is, is zoom in on the Bible, and we become these like super fundy guys who live in our little ghettos, and we, and we don't think very broadly. Now, how are you doing as a husband in your own household? I suggest reading a decent book about what it's like to raise sheep. We're, we're reading this play in a Shakespeare class, Taming of the Shrew, not controversial in any way, shape, or form. And one, one of the things we find out that the play makes sense is, is, is if you learn something about hawking from the Middle Ages. And, and, and what I find is that Christians are like, no, 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 no. I don't want to know about husbandry. I don't want to know about gardening. I don't want to know about the watershed. I don't want to know about all these things about like tending the earth. Because what I want to do is I want you just to sit down and you tell me the three things I need to do in order to make sure my kids go to bed on time. I don't know how many times I've been asked that. Help me understand how to do bedtime. I'm like, here's a book about raising sheep. Right? You want, you, you want to 
Tame the Shrew in your household. Read first Taming of the Shrew. Secondly, here's a book on falconing from the Middle Ages. How, how is the garden going? How is the husbandry? Right? If you were to describe before today the ideal husband, the ideal father, would you have described him as a gardener? Would you have described him as a man like this? God's ways are not our ways. And we are trying to figure out in all these other ways how to do things that he very clearly tells us how to do in the scriptures. And so go and you read a poem like this and you think, you know what, he's describing the ideal leader like a gardener and I don't know jack diddly about gardening. (laughs) Apparently things don't grow in just any kind of soil. Right? There's an environment in which things grow. That's what he's telling us here. A just king is the kind of king that is like the early morning sun cloud, in the cloudless sky when the dew is upon the earth. And that is an environment in which things thrive, which tells us there's an environment in which things thrive. Your marriage, your household, your job. And, and what he tells us here is what? So now you go home and you look at everything, you look at your life and you're like, well, Mike said we should be like gardeners and I don't know anything about gardening and so all these promises don't belong to me. No, what, what did David do? His eyes were not on himself. You go home, and you get on your knees, and you say, Lord God, I know that you have promised to overcome me, overcome self with Christ. And I pray that you teach me what it means to be a true gardener and a true husbandman in my own household, in my own marriage, in my own community, to take responsibility for the things around me in the light of the gospel. And you will fail, I guarantee it, but that is not the end of the point. That's not the end. You have to boldly say, no, God has promised me that I will succeed, and so I will succeed, and so that is going to strengthen me against every failure and every kind of opposition and help me to overcome those things that I cannot overcome in and of myself. The sun is up. Okay? The sun is up. The skies, well metaphorically, are not cloudy, right? Because Christ is the king. And, and so are, are we going to live believing that? Believing that? Or are we going to be pessimistic and doubt? Right? Get your eyes off yourself and on him, and what you will find is that if by following him, and opening his word, and understanding things like this, you, right, it, the things in your life will take care of themselves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for David and his ministry to us. We pray, God, that you would help us to um, grow in our understanding of what true biblical authority um, is for and how it functions. I pray, God, that we would go from here, that we would have tender consciences to repent of our sins, that we would boldly come before your face, that we would seek the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would stand upon his promises to fulfill all of the responsibilities that you have so graciously given us. We thank you for the sanctifying power and the love and mercy and grace of your Holy Spirit dwelling within us and our unity with the Son. And, and Lord God, we look to the Father to continue to govern our lives, that, we, that he would, in fact, um, weed the garden in which we live, that we might flourish. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son. And amen.